Romans chapter 15. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans, the 15th chapter. We are fast approaching the end of our study of this epistle. And as we do, we're also approaching a section of Romans, which I think is indicative of a section of so many parts of the epistles in the New Testament, where people tend to read fast and skip over and not pull the car over to enjoy the view. As I told you last week, the formal instructive part of the book of Romans ended in verse 13. And from verse 14 of chapter 15 through the end of 16, Paul is going to be personal. This is his, his PS on his letter. We're going to look at verses 14 through 21 this morning. Let me read that to put it freshly in our minds. Paul writes, And concerning you, my brethren, Romans 15, 14, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, or an acceptable sacrifice, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders in the power of the Spirit. So that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus, I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. I love the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. I think if you were to look at my Spotify or iTunes or whatever thing I pull up, you would see that playing Bach surpasses everything else I listen to. He defined Baroque in the area of classical music that was known as Baroque and universally regarded as one of the greatest composers to ever live, although not highly regarded during his lifetime, interestingly enough. And as much as I love listening to his music, I most enjoy listening to his cello suites. Most of his cello suites were written for an unaccompanied cello, and they're written to intentionally sound like three or four instruments. And if you've heard the cello suites, you will listen multiple times to a skilled uh, uh, cellist and think, how, how many people are, are recording this? His cello suites are sometimes joyful, triumphant, 
always melodic, sometimes soothing and occasionally haunting. Some fast, some slow. And when I hear box cello suites, I almost hear words of praise to God, which is exactly why he wrote. I love listening to Bach, sort of. Never heard Bach. No one alive today ever has either, except maybe Jim. Did, do you remember what Bach sounded like? I'm sorry, Jim, it was, it was wide open. <laughs> Jim loves Bach. He died July 20th, 1750. So how is it possible for us today to enjoy Bach? Well, by contemporary musicians looking at music that he wrote, which was meticulously written and preserved, we can hear Johann Sebastian Bach's music. I love hearing Yo-Yo Ma play Bach's cello suites, but I want to confess, I even more so love, it, love hearing our own Megan Weibling play Bach. Leah Barnett plays, and I'm sure Alan Church will be doing that pretty soon. I love hearing our cellists play music written for God's glory excellently in our church. But I want you to know something. Notice this. It's completely possible to love and appreciate and enjoy Bach's music played through another musician who's not Bach. There's no conflict in appreciating the skill of the musician and at the same time appreciating the wonder of the composer and the composition. I want you to think of that illustration in reference to what Paul is doing this morning. As we come to this section of Romans before us, we find a similar kind of appreciation. As believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we love him. We enjoy him. We worship him. We're anchored to him, saved by him, sanctified by him. We long to arrive in heaven where our faith will become sight and we will see him. But our appreciation and love of others who love and follow him and our ability to faithfully draw from their examples of their love for him solicits our admiration and emulation. We should follow and imitate their example. We love seeing others play Christ's music, live his life, worship his glory. And in this last section of Romans, we, we have a view into the life and heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul was playing Christ's music, if we want to keep the illustration stretched. Living Christ's life, serving Christ's mission, and serving us to see and love Jesus more because of his faithfulness to his Lord. So, just like I can love box music through Megan Weibling's playing and excellently articulating it, in this section of Romans, I think it should make us love our Lord Jesus Christ by seeing Paul's ministry for him. Now, as I told you last week, verse 13 marks the end of the formal part of the letter. Uh, verse 14 begins the informal PS, the personal side of the letter. 
But the theology and instruction we find from Paul's example is rich and deep and intended. You know, sometimes you need to step back from, from a text and ask yourself, I wonder why the Holy Spirit put this in the Bible. If we believe that every word is inspired by God, every word is profitable for the edification of believers and the building up of the maturity of the church, what about these greetings and postscripts? Well, I have found that this section, which I so typically rush through, is dense and rich with gospel application and good, solid, applicational theology. So, for our study today, we're going to observe in Paul four characteristics of a faithful minister. We're going to look at the anatomy of a faithful minister this week, and next week we're going to look at the anatomy of a faithful missionary, which is just on the heels of this. So let's look at four characteristics of a faithful minister. We observe Paul in living color, in full action, interacting with a people, a, a group of people that he loved but had never met. A shepherd of sheep he did not know but had care for nonetheless. Four characteristics of a faithful minister. And the reason I chose that word minister is Paul specifically chose it. And I'm going to t- talk to you about that word in a moment. The first is in verse 14, discerning awareness of the sheep. A faithful minister has discerning awareness of the flock, of the sheep. I love verse 14, and concerning you, my brethren. He has not been there. He wants to go there on his way to Spain. We'll see next week. Concerning you. He loved these brothers and sisters in Christ whom he'd never met. He had heard so much about them. He was so interested in their work and interested in their love for Christ, interested in their faithfulness that he's able to call them brethren and then speak to them specifically. Concerning you, I myself, the Greek is emphatic. He could have said I alone, but I myself also am fully convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Now, here in verse 14, Paul's going to give us a look into the church and the life of the church at Rome. He knows these people well enough to comment on saying, concerning you, my brethren, he's never met them, but he cares for them as if he were their own flesh and blood siblings, having never laid eyes on them. It's nothing short of amazing that this verse comes after the stern instruction of chapters 14 and the first half of chapter 15, where he addresses the stresses and strains and unholy disposition of one another in the Jew and Gentile sects that had been began worrying about their liberties and their, their differences. Remember, he was talking to a group of people who were two groups of people pulled together who um, they dressed differently, they, they ate differently, they spoke differently. They had different color skin. They were different racially. They thought differently of society and they were thought of differently in society. And you know what? Historically, they didn't like each other at all. In fact, they hated each other. Remember the the zealots of the gospels? They were the ones who surrounded themselves with others for the purpose of hating and defeating the Romans these Gentiles. And yet here they are in the same church called to love each other, defer to each other, understand each other, and accept each other. 
after having told them for a cha- chapter and a half, he's going to call it warning them sternly in a moment. He commends them. Compliments them. He says, I'm convinced that you yourselves, and then he gives a threefold commendation to them. And it's really twofold, and I'll explain to you what I mean in just a moment. There's, by the way, a different tone that he uses with correcting these Romans than he did with the Corinthians. Uh, listen, chapter, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is 12 verses of encouragement and commendation, and then 16 chapters of a spiritual spanking. This is different here. He has spiritually encouraged and corrected and spanked them over the last chapter and a half, but that leads him to climax that discussion in commendation. Look, first of all, he says, first part of this threefold compliment, they were full of goodness. The word is used in 2 Thessalonians 1.11 as a moral desire and intent of a faithful believer. It's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. It's a virtue that doesn't need a lot of explanation. I think sometimes we try to over-explain the obvious. You're full of goodness. In other words, you have a moral virtue that flows out of your knowledge of the gospel that makes you nice and good. It changes your personality. You're not Eeyore and you're not angry. And don't miss how contrasting this virtue would have been in Rome, but with these two groups having hated each other, now worshiping the Savior together. It's, it was an immoral city, produced uh, the, the vileness of a Caligula just a few years before this writing, and yet they were full of goodness as Romans. I, I just think of Ephesians 5, 8, where, and following where this word is used. You were formerly in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the lights consists in all goodness, same word, and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You are in a godless, immoral, reckless society, and you stand out as people who are biblically trying to be good. Now, I said there's three commendations, but kind of two, because these next ones are connected by an and, a chi in the Greek. And they're really the same thing with explanation and application. Look, secondly, he says, you are filled or complete, fullness, with all knowledge. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that they were instant, you know, uh, uh, theologians who could pass An A on every theology test? No, that's not what it means. Does that mean they didn't even need the book of Romans? Paul had just written the book of Romans. How could they be full of all knowledge, have complete knowledge? What is he talking about? He is not talking about biblical acumen and theological acuity. He's not talking about them not needing to be taught theology. It's related to what is in the next phrase. There's an and there that connects these two. You're full of all knowledge and, here's this next part, able to admonish one another. They were knowledgeable enough, okay, just for a second, eye contact. I want you to hear this. I want you to see this. They, Paul said, were knowledgeable enough The New American Standard says to admonish one another, to be able to admonish one another. This word is the word nutheteo, which we've heard from uh, uh, Jay Adams for years, has talked about nuthetic counseling. The word has 
a negative and a positive, a building up and a corrective dimension. It means to correct and to encourage. The best way to think about Nuthateo is when I used to run track in high school around the, the, the mile and the two mile. And in the middle of the two mile, you're getting tired and Coach Haddock would come out and yell at us, correction, you've got to catch that guy. And encouragement, you can do this. That's nutateo. You're doing both. You're doing everything you can to move someone along. That's the idea here. Paul says, get this, don't miss this. Underline, highlight, and put an asterisk by this. You have enough knowledge to counsel, that's the word, counsel one another. In fact, Jay Adams took this phrase and titled his book, Competent to Counsel. What is he saying? He's saying these Roman believers, think about this, were equipped enough, had enough knowledge to be self-correcting in the redeemed community to encourage one another, admonish each other, counsel one another toward continued godliness and kingdom fruitfulness. Now, these implications are profound. You you need to stop in your tracks when you hear this. Most people would say, well, I'd love to be a counselor, but I'm not trained, so I, I I need to go to a trained counselor or send someone to a trained counselor There were no trained counselors in Rome. Are you ready for this? They had no Bible. And he still says they had enough knowledge to counsel one another. No training, no pastor of counseling, no Bible. But they knew right and wrong and how to encourage, build up someone and correct them when they were erring from the standard that Christ had left them for living for him. What are the implications? Just try these on. Ready? If the Romans were competent to counsel with no Bible, limited instruction, a love for each other, how much more competent to counsel are you? Do you, <laughs> do you have in your, in your thinking, wow, somebody's talking to me about that. They need, they need Pastor Rick. They need Aaron. They need one of the elders. I can't handle this. They need professionally trained help. What do you think Paul would have said? He wasn't even there. And told them, you are competent to counsel each other. You know what? If you read Job, you understand 90% of counseling is not so much knowing everything to say, but expressing care and the willingness to walk with someone through their troubles. He says, you're able. You're able to counsel and encourage one another. Yes, our pastors and elders are here to help. Yes, we're here to guide, but that does not negate the responsibility of the body to one another. Paul Tripp has that, that book that we read in our care groups a few years ago, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. And the, if I could subtitle that whole book, it's you can care for and, and counsel one another. Now, I want to, let me put myself in your loafers for a second. I know what some of you are thinking, well, I'd like to, but I just don't know what to say. I, I don't know enough. You know more than these Romans did. 
you know way more than these Romans did, and you have more access to knowledge and instruction than these Romans did. It's okay for someone to say, I'm struggling with X, and you say, I don't even understand X, I struggle with Y, but can we meet next week, and I'm going to go study X with you, and then we will talk about that together. I have a backpack that I got for hunting. And I'll never forget the reading all about this backpack I have. And it had a strange thing, and ladies would know about this more than, than I would. It had self-healing zippers. You ever heard of that? Self-healing zippers. In other words, if, you're, if, if, if the, the old YKK gets off track, it has some mechanism physically that will get it back on track if you re-zip it. The church is to be self-healing, self-correcting, self-admonishing, self-encouraging. Listen, I, I pray that so many of you will go to the ACBC conferences and get counseling uh, training and be better equipped. We ought to have specialists, but that does not let all of us, that does not let any of us off the hook for caring enough to provide encouragement and correction. You say, well, what about all the problems? There's only three. John told us in 1 John 2, 14 to 16, lust the flesh, lust the eyes, pride of life, or some combination of those. It's not, sin is not complicated. Satan only has three arrows or shoots two or three of them at a time. We can identify and correct and encourage and counsel more than you think. They knew right and wrong. Their consciences were working, working and enlivened by the gospel. And Paul said, you have enough knowledge to counsel one another. I just look around and I wonder what kind of church would this be if we had 500 counselors? You know what kind of church we would be? This kind of church that didn't even have a Bible. That's what kind of church we would be. He was aware of them and encouraged them based on what they had that they didn't even realize, recognize, or employ. He knew the sheep and put the carrot out in front of them and said, you can make your church more mature and healthier if you love for and counsel and care for and admonish and correct, encourage one another. That's a first characteristic of a faithful minister. Secondly, he had bold convictions about theology. Bold convictions about theology. He says in verse 15, but I have written very boldly to you on some points. Now stop right there. A lot of debate about what this is. I don't think it's that difficult to figure out. For the last chapter and a half, he's been talking about some very specific, very pointed issues of getting along with each other between Jews and Gentiles and Christian liberties. And he's been very bold about it. You could also reach back to chapter 6. You who have died to sin in Christ, stop living in it. He's been bold. His theology was practical, not just theoretical. Listen, theology is for life, not just books. And the books on theology should find their way into your living 
Every one of you, listen, every one of you is a theologian. The question is what kind and how deep are you? I've written to you boldly on some points so as to remind you again, can you just stop right there? That every time I hear myself being repetitive, I'm just thankful for Paul, who is pretty repetitive. And if you ever hear me or another preacher say something they've said a hundred times before and you say, oh, here he goes again on that, especially if the text is going to that issue, just know that Paul himself had to say, I know you've heard this, but you need to hear it again. And I love this. This is his internal experience of theology and grace because of the grace that was given me from God. I can write to you boldly. I can correct you. I can instruct you. I can remind you because I have experienced grace internal to my own life. What's he talking about? There's a credibility of counsel and instruction and correction that comes from a personal experience of grace that's way different than reading a book and giving a book report. Peter said, I'm ready to give a defense for the hope that's where? It's within me. It's okay and enough for as little or as much as you understand theologically to discuss and apply cherish and use it to correct the people that you know in this body. In fact, it's an expectation. Paul's boldness in teaching and in correction was rooted in his personal experience with grace, his theological understanding of that. Theological boldness must be sourced in God's grace. And boldness is the result of personal experience with the theological truth and convictions and personal experience with Christ. I can be bold with you, which he was from chapter one on. I can instruct you, I can correct you because I, I have been corrected and admonished and experienced the grace of God through my own theological understanding. Bold convictions about theology. Thirdly, priestly service for evangelism. Now, I want to tell you from here forward, this is going to introduce what Paul says next week about his experience as a missionary. This, this leaks into missions and evangelism go hand in glove. Verse 16 says, to be a minister. Stop right there. We need to talk about this word. It's not a word Paul uses very often. He uses the word shepherd. Sometimes he uses the word servant, elder, leader. He uses a lot of words, but this is really different. Minister, the same word that's translated minister, we get the word liturgy from. It's a publicly demonstrated application of ministry leadership at any and every level. I was called by the grace of God. My experience of the grace of God has Move me to be a minister of Christ Jesus. I am a liturgy. I am a message of Christ. I'm, I'm an epistle. I'm a letter. I'm a mouthpiece. I'm an example of Christ Jesus. 
someone publicly identified as representing Christ, I think that could categorize everyone who claims to be a Christian. He uses other terms when he's talking about a a pastor. This one seems to be him just saying, as a Christian, this is what I do. And then he gets specific about his mission and his missions with the Gentiles. Christ Jesus. Paul often uses Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. We say Jesus Christ. He preferred Christ Jesus. The Messiah, the one from Nazareth. The anointed one. To be a minister of the anointed one, this is interesting, Christ Jesus is a Jewish designation of the Jewish Messiah to the Gentiles. Do you see that? It's incredible. I was called by the grace in me to be a minister, a public message of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering, now he changes the analogy, as a priest, the gospel of God. He almost uses priest as a verb. I'm priesting it. I'm interceding. I'm, I'm an intermediary between God and man. That's what a priest does. Ministering as a priest, the subject was the gospel of God. That was his message. That's what he took from God to the people and what he extracted from the people to give God glory in their believing it. And then Paul says so much about offering. Remember we talked about this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says that we are to be an offering to God, an acceptable offering to God. Look at how he uses that same terminology and imagery here. So that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. He says, I'm a priest standing between God and man, and I want my offering to God, chapter 12, to be me. That's every Christian. But I want it as a minister, as a priest, to be me taking the hands of people who don't know Christ through my relationship and my relationship with God and the hand I have with him and bringing them together and letting go that they have a relationship. And he wanted that to be acceptable. That's the language of Old Testament sacrifice, acceptable to God. And I love this. Set aside, made holy, by the Holy Spirit. That is such an attribution of the sovereignty of God and salvation to the evangelistic enterprise. This is only gonna happen if the Holy Spirit is operative. Regeneration only happens, Titus 3, because of the Holy Spirit. John 14, John 15, John 16, it's the Holy Spirit who points to Christ. Without the operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unbeliever, no one will ever choose to believe. Why? We are what in our trespasses and sins? Dead. He has in mind that of a temple priest who's standing between God and the people and people and God. A priest, an acceptable offering, the blessing of the Holy Spirit. These are all sacrificial images from the Old Testament. He's speaking of winning Gentiles to Christ and letting them be what he offers to God. I gotta admit, that changes the way I think about evangelism. I know we said we wanna win people to Christ, but someone, I think, is that winning them to our trophy case? Or is that winning them to Christ? That to bring someone by faith and understanding to the gospel is to give them as an offering to Christ 
priestly service for evangelism. You do believe in the Reformation doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, don't you? First Peter 2, we are all called to be priests. You're a minister and you're a priest, whether or not you're on a pastoral staff or not. And then fourthly, a fourth characteristic of, faithful, of a faithful minister, clear preaching for Christ's glory. This is right on the heels of what he just said. Clear preaching. When you think, when you hear the word preaching, don't think of a sermon as much as you think of, of a proclamation evangelistically. I'm, I'm not gonna get into all the Greek language here, but, but here's what you need to understand. When you read the book of Acts, when you read the word preach, predominantly what that means, preaching in the book of Acts, was evangelism. What we're doing right now, what we call preaching, was typically in 1 Timothy called instruction. Now, I'm not gonna change the whole world's nomenclature on what they're calling preaching, but what we're doing now is way more akin to what Paul is talking about to Timothy to give yourself to instruction. But you read the book of Acts, the evangelium, the preaching was to tell people the gospel. And in that, you are a preacher and a proclaimer. A mouthpiece. You're a liturgy for the gospel. All of us are. Verse 17, Therefore in Christ Jesus, I love his designation of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the Nazarene, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Wow, everyone, everyone, everyone is a natural born bragger. We all brag. It's just identifying what we boast about. Some about their children, some about their grandchildren, some about their grades or sports or accomplishments or jobs or promotions or knowledge or athleticism. I remember when I used to brag about that. What do you brag about? You're a natural born bragger. All of us boast. That's the assumption of Jeremiah when he says in Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man, if you're smart, if you're wise, let not a wise man brag or boast of his wisdom. Let not a mighty man, a strong man, a man of strength or wealth means boast of his might, his position. And let not a rich man boast of how wealthy he is, his riches. What he's saying is whatever you're good at ought not to be what you brag about. Let not the natural inclination of our boasting be naturally expressed in that which we assess ourselves to be good at or to be blessed by. But, he says in Jeremiah 9, 24, let him who boasts, he doesn't say if perchance you boast, he assumes that we're boasting, let him who boasts, boast in this. Here's your bragging. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. I think that is nothing less than a direct description of who Jesus is. Sure, they were longing for God who's the Redeemer, when Paul says, I boast in Christ, I think he's echoing what Jeremiah is saying here, that we're all going to brag. What do you brag about? 
I mean, think about this for a minute. You know what you could say, not, not in a caustic, disrespectful way, but you could walk up to an unbeliever tomorrow and say, and say something like this. Hey, I just want to tell you, I personally meet every day with the creator of the universe. What would that response be? You do what with who? Who do you think you are? That, that would be, you're bragging about meeting with God. Actually, yeah, that's my boast is I know Christ. It leads to his message, leads to his message, verse 18, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. When I'm gonna talk about anything great in my ministry, in my life, I'm gonna point to what Christ has done in me, for me, through me. He's quick to deflect attention and glory of his ministry to Christ and his work through him. You say, what did he have to brag about? What would he be tempted to boast about? Look at the next phrase. Resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed and the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Holy Spirit. Hmm, let's think about this. A bunch of people uh, experienced revival who were Gentiles by his preaching, by his actions. He had signs and wonders and people knew he was blessed by the Holy Spirit. Do you think he had anything to boast about? And he says, I'm gonna give God all the glory for all of that that he's given me. How do the Gentiles know, by the way, that this Jewish sect, this Jewish religion called Christianity, which is how they viewed it at the time, you can read Josephus about that. How do the Gentiles know that this Jewish religion called Christianity was real and divine? How, how do they know? How was it authenticated? Because the message was accompanied by signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And let me just remind you that we believe, we think the scriptures clearly teach here at Mission Road that once the scriptures were complete, there was no need to authenticate the message by signs and wonders. It's authenticated by the word of God itself and that they died away. But that in no way doesn't, imply that God doesn't do miraculous things in our day. What he's saying, I think, is what we're saying is that that's not the signature of authenticity. This book is the signature of our authenticity. So that, verse tw- uh, back to verse 19, from Jerusalem around about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Man, this is, I was surprised when I read commentaries this week how much ink is spilt on whether or not Paul went to Illyricum, which is the modern-day Yugoslavia area, Serbia, because there's no account of him going in Acts. Well, it says he went there. I, are you okay with that? says he did it as far as there. Now, does that mean the district? It doesn't tell us. The point is north of Turkey, up north of Croatia, straight up, Asia Minor, going north, look at his missionary journeys. Any of the second and third missionary journey, he could have easily taken a, a jump trip up there and just not recorded it. The point is not the where, the point is the extent. And what did he do in these far-reaching places? He preached the gospel of Christ. 
he proclaimed. He told people the good news that they could be saved from their sin because God rightfully poured out his anger on Christ that you and I deserved to save us from the wrath that we, we earned for ourselves. The wages of sin is death to be forever separated from him in hell. And he died in our place for that so that we could have his righteousness. And he rose from the dead to prove that it was true. He went pretty far north. And we're gonna see next week, he wants to go pretty far northwest as well. But the point is that he fully preached the gospel of Christ. By the way, I think I said there are four, and I'm counting five. There's a five, a fifth, I don't know what, yeah, five, thank you. My notes are wrong. Kathy's editing of me is right. The fifth characteristic of faithful minister is this. And this is just introduction to next week. Maybe that's why I forgot it. Missions mindset for the unreached. Wow. A faithful minister, Paul, the Romans, you and me, must have a missions mindset for the unreached. He's talking about he's been far north. He wants to go far northwest up to Spain. Find out next week. Thus I desired, I aspired, I longed to proclaim the gospel, preach the gospel, <coughs> not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. What is he talking about here? Well, this is an introduction to the next section where we're going to see the anatomy of a faithful missionary. But let's look briefly into his heart. Look at the features of his mindset about missions. Missions is to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news of God. It's all great to build wells and to plant gardens. I don't think that's a bad thing to do, but that's not our message. Our message is to be saved from sin. He also wanted to go where the gospel had not been heard. He was a pioneer missionary. It was also allowing others to complete the buildings of their work where Christ had been preached. He wanted to go there where there was no foundation, no understanding. He's not being competitive here. I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. I want to build my own. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if there's a foundation there, let that seed spread and, and grow. I want to go where they've never heard. Can, can I just, can we talk for a moment? Do you understand you don't have to go to Erie and Gyra for that? My wife and I, not long ago, had, had a conversation with someone who lives near us who was a Jewish lady. In her whole life, living in Kansas City, she had never heard the gospel. My suspicion is you're going to go to work tomorrow and you're going to find people who've never heard it. You're going to go to school tomorrow and sit next to men and women and young people who've never heard the gospel. Yes, this is to go to Erie and Gyra, Papua New Guinea. It's also to go next door into the desk next to you and to the cubicle or office down the hall. People who've heard of Christmas and Easter have not necessarily 
heard the gospel? Do they understand the truth? I don't know everyone here. Do you understand the truth that God is rightfully angry at our sin, our rebellion against him from our birth? But he's made a way through his grace. He invented a scheme no man would have ever dared invent where he sent his only son to be the sacrifice and the representative and the the stand-in for you and me to die in our place for our sin. And in turn, give us his perfection and his righteousness. And after being crucified, was buried and rose from the grave and now has ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Have you heard that? Do you understand that? If, If you haven't, later our prayer room will be open. We'd love to talk to you. But the people around you are competent to counsel. They will be glad to tell you what it means to give your life to a Savior who loves you to the extent of his stretching out his arms and dying on a cross for you. Jesus died for the sins of all who believe. Also, another feature is he was faithful to Scripture. He quotes Isaiah 52, 15, which we'll come back to next week. They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. This is pioneer missions. This is pioneer gospel uh, missions. Notice, by the way, he's talking about the Gentiles, and he says, it is written using the Jewish scriptures. You don't have to be a Jew to understand and submit to the authority of God in the Older Testament. It is written. And for him, he was talking about the Older Testament. So what do we take away from this? Well, this, this is just Paul's PS. What do we take away? Can I give you some options? You don't have to do all of these. I'd rather you pick one. Are you aware that you are competent to counsel, to bear the burdens of those around you, to hear their problems and not fix them, but to care about them? and correct thinking, and correct sin, and encourage righteousness. Are you aware that God has made you way more competent than these Romans who Paul said were competent to do so? Said another way, do you care enough to help the people around you that you know who need correction and encouragement and someone to simply care about their troubles? That's body life. It's church life. It's love. And they were doing this Jew to Gentile, cross-cultural, cross-racial, cross-language, cross-everything. Another question. Are, you con- are your convictions rooted in theological understanding and thinking or just what you heard from somebody some time ago? Is the grace that you have anchored in what is written, can you define your convictions by book, chapter, verse, and the grace that God has given you, or do your convictions go back to someone who taught you somewhere long ago in a place you can't remember? A third question. Do you desire to offer up to God the acceptable sacrifice of a new convert? Do you want to give God his elect? Isn't that an odd thought? Lord, here's your elect that you used me to identify and to call. What a privilege. 
Those of us who hold to the sovereignty of God and salvation ought to be the people who are running to evangelism to participate with God's election in that, not the people who just leave it to God. I want to be a part of that process to see God receive his acceptable and precious sacrifices of new converts. And I know you do as well. Two more questions. Is Christ your message? He says, the gospel, Jesus is the message. Our message is a man. Our message is not just a theological construct. Our message isn't even a plan of salvation. It's the God-man who gave salvation. It's a person. And then this is an introduction to next week. Do you have, will, will you foster, do you want a place in your heart that yearns that longs for Christ-exalting missions among the nations. Are you jealous that we beat the Muslims to the unreached parts of our world? Are you jealous that you get to tell the people you know around you the gospel before someone teaches them an unbiblical version of it. And next week, we're gonna look at the anatomy of a faithful missionary. Back for a moment to Bach. Do you look at the examples in scripture of those who play Christ's music, like Paul, and want to imitate them Listen, when, I, when any of our cellists that we're so gifted at our church to have, any of our cellists play, and especially I know when Megan has played Bach, I love what Bach's done, but I appreciate what someone's done to point me to what he's done. Do you want to be that person who loves what Christ has done, who people can look at, and see and know and long for who he is and what he's done because of, can I say it this way, the way we play his music, the way we live his life. It's a lot of stuff in a PS, isn't there? I mean, this is heavy stuff. This is not typical PS, I'll meet you at the water cooler. This is some heavy stuff. And next week, I just want to give you a warning. Next week, bring your seatbelts. Paul is going to take the idea of missions being other people over there. If I can borrow from our friend John Piper to say there's three kinds of people. People who go, people who send, and people who are disobedient. We're going to find out where we are through Paul's example next week.